finishing up genuine in the book of First John. Ten weeks. It's been ten weeks. It just flew right by. Ten weeks in this series called genuine. As we've opened up to uh, the letter of First John and ask these questions: Are we genuine? And how can we know? And how can we have assurance? And so I'm excited to finish those things out. It's crazy that it's already been ten weeks. I can't believe it. I started this morning. I think to get the conversation going. I I want to tell you that I had the honor and privilege to officiate a wedding this weekend. Uh, a lovely time, the bride and groom together. The gospel was so clear. People saw, right, marriage is this, this symbol of Christ and the church, this great mystery. Uh, but as I was standing there, it got me thinking of the day that I have to say for my own daughters. To answer this question, who gives this woman to be married to this man? I'm not looking forward to that day. <laughs> And then as I reflect on that moment, it gets me thinking of the question that there will be a day that some young man, some young suitor will come and approach me and actually have the audacity to ask for my blessing and our blessing, my wife and I, that we might let him have our daughter's hand in marriage. Are you kidding me? I'm grateful that they're still six and four. So that's going to be a tough day, and I'm sure I will ask all the questions, right? Do you really love her? Do you love the Lord? Could you share the gospel with me? I want to ask that question. <laughs> how are you going to lead her spiritually? Or how are you currently leading right now in your local church? How are you going to provide for her financially? How will you protect her? And do you really understand the commitment that you're asking me to allow you to make to my daughter? I'm going to ask those questions, and I'm not sure what his answers will be. I don't even know the man. We pray for him. I don't know <laughs> what his answers will be, but I do know this. My answer will certainly not be yes, unless I am confident, and I mean confident, that what he says is true, that who he uh, says he is, is true, that he really represents something about his character and his nature and his love for God and his love for my daughter. If I'm not confident in those things, there's no way I'm going to say yes. I will be more confident about that decision than maybe less than I could number on my hand any other decision I've made in my life. As we finish the book of 1 John, I think John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to be just as, if not, more confident about our relationship with Christ than I'm going to be on that day 15, 20, 30 years from now. When I say yes, I will give you my blessing. This kind of confidence that he wants us to have, knowing that we know that we know the one true God and that in him is eternal life. Those things being understood, let's read, follow along as I read 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 through the end of the chapter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence that we have toward Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. If we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know 
that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should ask or pray, rather, pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I want to draw your attention there to verse 13, and I think it's helpful to help us understand the rest of the whole passage in his closing. This kickoff statement that says, we should have confidence. I write you these things who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. And so if you're taking notes, the first thing you can write is this. Genuine believers have confidence for eternity. If you believe in the Son of God, you should know for sure that you have eternal life. There should not be any wavering or I hope so or I think so. You should know so. Why? Because we trust God's word. We trust what it says. We've repented and believed. We understand what it is to walk with Jesus, to have our sins forgiven, be redeemed, made pure, and then live this life that God has called us to live. Not from our experiences, more so because it's right here in the word. We can bank on what God says. We know, we have confidence in the promises of God. John said something similar in the end of the gospel, John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Knowing who Christ is and what he has done and having confidence on those things, standing on the gospel, gives us assurance. Helps us know that we know the one true God. I'm just curious if there's any daredevils in the room. Uh, just by a show of hands, how many people have been bungee jumping? Bungee, I want to see. So this is good. I can learn this about the church from maybe about a dozen. Uh, here's the thing about bungee jumping. I did it one time on a date. I love my wife. She takes me bungee jumping on a date for my birthday back in Dallas. Uh, you get it all strapped up. It's down around your ankles, and you stand on this tower, and there's this moment where you say, am I really going to do this? Am I really going to jump off of this platform, bounce up and down on this magnified rubber band, and if it doesn't work, is that pad down there really going to save my life? I don't know. And you just have this one, two, three moment. You say, yep, I trust the rope. And you just go, right? There's a confidence there. 
I jumped not thinking I might die. I jumped saying, I'm sure this rope is going to catch me. It's going to spring up and down, and it's going to be a blast, right? We have to have that same kind of confidence in Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Did he die for your sin? Have you repented and believed in him? Are you living for him? Do you know him? And if you do, jump off the ledge. You got all the confidence that you need. You have confidence for eternity. And so all along in this series, all along we've been asking the question, are you genuine, right? If you're genuine, you love your brother. If you're genuine, you don't keep on sinning. If you're genuine this, if you're genuine that, it's right there in the book of 1 John. As he closes the letter, it's not a question that's supposed to pose doubt in your mind. Hey, are you really genuine, guys, that I'm writing to here in 1 John? It's more of an assurance, a confidence. Hey, I wrote these things that you might know for sure. You know Christ, and there's eternal life in Christ. So rather than asking the question this morning, are you genuine, I ask this question. Do you have confidence? Do you have confidence? And if so, praise God and be encouraged. And if not, talk to somebody. Nobody in here is perfect, right? Talk to somebody and say, hey, I know because the Bible said I should have confidence, but I don't. Would you pray with me? Would you help me? Would you show me some scriptures that I can just memorize and hide in my heart? Would you help me in these times of doubt? Just be vulnerable with somebody. Talk to them and say, hey, I need a little help. White flag. That's what the church is here for, right? The people, a body of people that love God, love each other. Do you have confidence? That's how we start today. As we continue to walk through the passage, uh, we're going to see this repetition over and over. I don't know if you caught it when I was reading it, but this phrase, we know, it happens six times here in just these short verses, six times. And so if you are a note taker, you can make a list. I said a few weeks back, I'm not really a list preacher, but it's right here in the text. This list is six truths that we know as genuine believers. If you're a genuine believer, you should know this. You have confidence in this. You know that you know these things about who God is. Here's number one. Number one, verse 15. We know that God hears those who pray according to his will. Look at verse 15 one more time. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have when we're asked, asked of him. Read verse 14 as well. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Great, Aaron, now I'm supposed to know God's will when I pray? How the heck am I going to do that? Listen, Jesus showed us how to do this in the garden. He's in the garden, Mark chapter 14, he says this. Verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you, Remove this cup from me. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about going and bleeding and dying for our sin. He's saying, Father, this is going to be really hard. If you can do this, just take this from me. But it doesn't end there. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Right? Another way to say that, not my will be done, your will be done, O oh God. How do you know that you're praying the will of God, that you can approach the Father with this Surrender and humility that says, God, you know exactly what's happening in my life. I trust you 
your will be done. That's how you know. Not because you're so smart. I'm not so smart that I always know the will of God. I know what the scripture says. I want to pray things that are in the scripture, and I know what an attitude of humility and surrender looks like because Jesus showed it to me in the garden. John Stott says it this way about praying the will of God. Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending His will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to His. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation of the theme, your will be done. What do we know? What can we be confident in? That when we pray in accordance, in accordance to the will of God, He hears us. It's a beautiful truth there. As I was studying and really meditating on this passage, there was this thought that came to me. You know, oftentimes we're looking for yes, no answers from God. God, your will be done. Just show me. I trust you, whatever you do. But have you ever stopped to think about the fact that when God answers not yet or no, that he's still giving you his will? Right? If we're petitioning God for something, he says not yet and no, and we say, okay, well, if it hasn't happened, Lord, your will be done. I trust you. The not yet answer and the no answer is still the will of God. So where are we in our conversation with the Father and our communication with the Father as we're talking to him to say, God, your will be done. And if it's not yet, if it's no, I trust you. Your will be done. See, we can be confident if we're praying in accordance to his will. He hears us, verse 14 and 15. And then there's these passages uh, right here, these verses in 16, 17, and 18. They seem a little out of place. Right after John says, look, be confident in your prayer life, he says this about sin not leading to death and sin leading to death. It's kind of strange. Why is that there? It's there just so we have an illustration of some really hard things to pray about. You want to be confident that God hears you when you pray His will? Hey, here's one example. When you see a brother or sister in the Lord walking in some kind of sin, pray for them. Pray that they would repent. Pray that they would be disciplined. God would draw them back to Himself. Pray that they truly would prove that their faith is real and have life in the kingdom for eternity. Pray for them. That's what it says here in 16 through 18. If anyone sees his brother committing sin, not leading to death, he should ask, and God will give him life, future, future life in the kingdom to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So this illustration, sin not leading to death, put on the brakes. Whoa. Some might hear this and start to worry. Hang on. Hang on, if there's sin that doesn't lead to death, there's sin that does lead to death, and now I'm starting to get fearful, whoa, I need to just watch myself and make sure I'm not sinning the sin that leads to death. I don't know if anyone else thinks that or not. If you don't, then I don't know. I, I thought that when I read it. Um, what is that? What does that mean? What does that look like, sin that leads to death and doesn't lead to death? Well, I'll tell you one thing it shouldn't do. It shouldn't make us afraid of God's judgment. Right? Earlier in First John, perfect love casts out fear. For there's no punishment in love, right? If you know that you know Christ, you're not afraid of the punishment of Christ. The other thing, it, it should just remind us in the context of verse 13 that we have confidence. So even if there's a 
a stutter in our own walk with the Lord, and we think, I don't want to, I want to make sure I don't walk in this sin that doesn't lead to death, we shouldn't be fearful because verse 13 says, I want you to be confident that you know Christ. So the answer is, it's not there for fear, right? There is sin that does not lead to death. Why? Because there's forgiveness available in Christ. Because Christ is our atoning sacrifice. All the way through the letter, it says that. 1 John 1, 9, what does it say? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can be confident in that. Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is not John trying to put a fear tactic in believers. This is John saying, here's something you should pray for. If you see a brother or sister in sin, make sure you pray for them. Make sure you ask that the Father would do the work that needs to be done to continue to cause them to persevere and endure, endure even through temptation, and prove the reality of their salvation, that Christ really has paid for them, redeemed them, given them a new heart. They're living holy lives. Pray for them. Okay, Aaron, well, we got that. That one's easy. But what do you do about this sin that leads to death and not praying for them? Is John really saying don't pray for them? Why? Why would we not want to pray for someone that seems to be walking in sin? Shouldn't we want to pray repentance for that person? Such a good question. I hope you're asking it in your head, and I'm not the only one asking it. Let me, let me help us out a little bit. Sin that leads to death. This whole book has been warning us, chapter 2 and chapter 4 specifically, about some false teachers. False teachers that denied that Jesus was the Christ. In fact, John called them the Antichrist, plural, Anyone that says Jesus is not the Christ, anyone that says you don't need to be forgiven by Jesus or his blood was not enough on the cross, those are false teachers. They've gone out from us. It says that in chapter 2. They are of the world. I think that's what he has in mind when he says this sin that leads to death. Not just their sin specifically, but ultimately all those who reject God's truth and thus call God a liar. If you're taking notes right now in chapter 1, 10, chapter 2, 22, and chapter 5, 10, all three of those verses say, you're calling God a liar if you say that you don't have sin. You're calling God a liar if you say that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. And so here, what John has in mind is anyone who rejects God's truth to the point of walking away and saying, I don't want anything to do with Jesus, he's saying, don't pray that they're going to have life. Because they probably won't have life. Because they don't know Jesus. Now, I want to be very clear. John does not say, don't pray for repentance. I pray for repentance. There are members of my family, friends that I have, that are walking in rejection to God's truth. I pray for their repentance. But I'm certainly not praying prayers like this. God, would you just draw them back to yourself, draw them back into fellowship with you, that they might have life? Because I don't think that they have life in Christ. If they're rejecting God's truth and clearly walking in rejection to God's truth like these false teachers have, we shouldn't pray some fake prayer that they have life. But we should pray the will of God. And I think it is in connection to the will of God to pray that lost people would repent. That's just not what John is talking about here. He's saying when you see a brother in sin that does not lead to death, pray that they would have life. Pray that the gospel would be real in their hearts Pray that they would persevere to the end. Pray that they would have life in eternity in the kingdom. 
But when you see someone in a sin that leads to death, and it's clear that they're not, they don't know Christ, they're rejecting God's truth, don't pray that they're going to have life. Because if they continue their life that way, they're, they're not genuine. They're not real. Pray that they repent and believe and might have an opportunity to come to Christ, and then they would have life. He just doesn't spell all that out here. I don't think he needs to. He's just using an illustration about the importance of praying God's will. So there's a side application for us, and it's this. Of course, the whole passage is confidence, be confident in your relationship with Christ. But the side application here is when you see someone, specifically in your local church, but even beyond that, someone who is a Christian, you know they love the Lord, they've walked with God, you've, you've seen their life, they've encouraged you before, they've prayed for you, and they're walking in sin, guess whose responsibility it is to pray for them? Yours. That's a side application for this passage, for this little illustration. We don't just say, I love you, brother, and then not call them to the carpet in their sin. I want to ask you a question. In the Old Testament, God, between Cain and Abel, comes and says, are you your brother's keeper? What do you say? I'm not my brother's keeper. Well, that's wrong. From this passage and so many others in the Bible, we are our brother's keeper. Whose job is it to pray for somebody when they're walking in sin? To really be honest with them and say, I'm concerned, call them to the carpet? It's our job. And I think in our culture, we just ignore that because we'd rather just float right along and be politically correct and, and, and we're afraid of confrontation, but that's not loving. And that's not the aim of this whole passage, so I'm not going to spend any more time there, but there's a sweet little illustration about the importance of a family of God loving each other enough to call them to the carpet. That was just number one. I promise the next five won't be as long. That just had a really long illustration, in, okay? Here's number two. What do we know? Number two. We know that we have what we ask, verse 15. If you're praying the will of God, then you should pray saying, God, I know, I know I'm going to have what I ask. Think about it like this. When I proposed to my wife, there wasn't a doubt in my mind that she was going to say yes, right? I knew I loved her. I knew she loved me. We had not said we loved each other. We had not talked about marriage. But there was just something in me, in our relationship, that I, I knew, I knew she was going to say yes. I didn't ask her saying, well, well, we'll see, right? I think if we know that we're praying the will of God, if we know it from the scriptures, if we're ha coming to him with this surrendered heart saying, your will be done, then we can be confident God's going to do exactly what we're asking because we're praying his will. We don't need to say, God, maybe if you want to. We can say, God, do this. I think it's your will. Do it. And if it's not your will, change my heart. And as you do that, you're doing your will. So do that. Change my heart. There's a confidence when we pray. We know you're going to do it. I might not always be certain that I'm praying the will of God, but I'm always certain of this. If I'm praying the will of God, I will have exactly what I ask. What's the application there? I think it pushes us to intimacy with God. I don't just check in, you know, once a week and say, God, I don't really know what you're doing, but hey, maybe do these things for me. No, I, I draw in. I want to draw in in that prayer closet in the morning times, I want to I be close with God so that as I'm talking with God, I have more of a confidence, right? That I'm praying these things that God's showing me right here in the Word. It draws me into an intimacy with God. I think it draws us into a trust. God, I trust you. I'm praying this. I trust you're going to do it. Why? Because I have a confidence that you're going to do your will, accomplish your will in my life. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? Here's number three of what we know. 
we know those born of God do not persist in sin because Jesus protects them. Read verse 18 again. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So, in case there was any confusion with the whole illustration about sin that doesn't lead to death, and we get kind of relaxed and lazy about pursuing holiness and righteousness, because we say, oh, Jesus is going to cover that, right? Cheap grace. In case there's any confusion, John comes back here and says, for the record, everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. Sin is still serious. Is there grace? Amen. Yes, there is. Is there forgiveness? Absolutely. Jesus paid for it on the cross. But that doesn't mean we just laissez-faire. I'm just going to kind of go through life not really caring. No. Sin is still serious because we know those born of God don't persist in sin. Romans 1 helps us here. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If we're genuine believers, if we know Christ, we're not just lazy with our sin. We still have temptation. We still struggle. We come in front of God and we say, help us here. Help me here. This is lifestyle, journey of repentance and belief, repentance and belief. There's also a promise here, a warning, but also a promise. It says the one born of God can't keep on sinning because the one born of God will protect him. You see that interesting play on word, born of God, born of God? The one born of God physically here is referring to Jesus, and then he just clearly comes out and says Jesus later, the one true God. In what sense is Jesus born of God? I think physically, you can look at Luke, uh, I've got it here in my notes, Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The Spirit will conceive this child within Mary. It says that, the angel's talking to Mary. Conceived, born of God, Spirit right here. So physically, in a sense, Jesus is born of God. That doesn't mean that he wasn't eternal for always. But in his incarnate state, he was born of God. And that's who will protect us. We can't persist in sinning if we're genuine. If we're genuine, we will have temptation. There will be temptations from the devil. But what a promise that Jesus protects us. The one born of God will protect you. Make sure the evil one can't touch you. I'm going to claim that promise. Satan, you have no authority in my life because I am his. Get back. Back off. Amen. Yeah. Amen. It reminds me of this uh, sweet promise in John chapter 10. Jesus is the good shepherd. He says this in verse 28. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Sweet security in the Lord. There's rest and assurance in knowing the Lord. Even knowing that when I sin, the book of Hebrews says God disciplines those that he loves and brings me back into fellowship with him. Praise God that the one born of God, physically Jesus Christ incarnate, will be the one who protects me for eternity. There's rest there. The fourth thing that we know. We know that we are of God. Interesting here in verse 19 that we're from God, we're of God, not like those that are in the world. Again, another looking back to chapter 4, talking about the false teachers. What did it say about them? 
chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we see that contrast there in verse 19. We know we're of God. We know this. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There is us and there is the world. We didn't go out into the world. We are of God. We are born of God. This great contrast. Beyond that, this beautiful rest, again, that we are the children of God. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 10 have this contrast between the children of God and the children of the devil. You know that you're of the children of the devil if you're not obeying God. You know that you're a child of God if you love your brother, right? You walk in holiness. Again, not a works-based salvation, just that when we respond to Christ, when we've given our lives to Christ, our lives look differently. We bear the fruit of salvation. And so this contrast, we know we're of God. We're children of God. We don't belong in the world. We're not children of the devil. There's this confidence here. I know my identity in Christ. So when I say we all should be confident, I'm asking you, do you know your identity in Christ? Number five, we know the Son of God has come. Look at there in verse 20. And we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know Him who is true. The false teachers denied that Jesus was the Son of God. They denied that Jesus was the Christ. So there's this confidence. We know Christ. We know He's the Son of God. Why is it so important, this Son of God language? Well, we could trace it all the way through the Bible. Daniel 7 Son of God, even into to Mark 8, you are the Christ, Peter's confession. Being the Son of God is a big deal because Jesus is divine just like the Father. I and the Father are one, Jesus said that in the Gospels. So when he lays his life down as a ransom for the many, it's not just the blood of some dude. It's the blood of the Son of God. We know that he is the Son of God. There's a confidence there. And it points us to the Gospel. And it points us back to the cross. We don't sing this song here, but uh, one of my favorites uh, from the previous church that we were serving in was this song, Son of God. And it says, my Savior, the glorious one, my Redeemer, living in my heart, now and forever, your kingdom come, O Jesus, Son of God. Such confidence. You are the Son of God. It's the kind of confidence we have as a believer. Lastly, number six. Number six. We know him who is true. Did you catch that in verse 20? That we might know, we know, right? We might, we may, but it's still this phrase, we know him who is true, and we're in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. We know him. He's true. We know that he is true. And so I ask, do you know that God is true? Do you trust what he says? Do you trust what he has done? Do you know him? Do you trust him? Our culture has become more and more untrusting, right? I love someone that you can just trust them at their word. That's rare these days. Just trust somebody at their word. In court, if somebody's testimony needs to be proven true, what do they do? They put them on a lie detector test, right? The polygraph. We want to know that what you're saying is true because we can't just trust you that what you say is true. Let me tell you something. We don't need a lie detector test for God. He's told us right here in his word. We can trust that he is true. We can trust his character, right? 
that in him there's no lie. Amen. And so part of this confidence, right, all the way through the book, these six truths, do you trust him at his word? Do you trust what Christ has done for you? And then just let me, let me help you to summarize this whole deal about we know what we know. It's true. Sometimes people might doubt their confidence a little bit, doubt their relationship with God. I've done that at times in my walk with God. God, do I really know you? Do I really trust you? Have I really given my life to Christ? Those times are good when we go back to the Word and it, and it strengthens our faith, right? But here's what I would caution you from doing. Before you would put any stock or evidence or encouragement at subjective things that you've experienced, I know that I know you because of this, because I've, I did this in my life and, and, and this changed in my life and this experience I had with you. Some of those things are helpful. I'm not saying they're bad, but I'm saying before you put any stock in those things, your own experiences, put all of your stock and all of your trust in the objective truth of God. These six statements have nothing to do with what you've done. These six statements have nothing to do with what I've done or what I've experienced in the Lord. It's everything to do with who God is and what he has done. And so if you're doubting, be honest with someone about it. And if you're looking for something to stand on, don't stand on your experience. Stand on who Christ is. Put all of your confidence in Christ. Right? We know the one true God. We know he's the son of God. We know he hears us when we pray, right? These are things that we learn from in the scripture. We can trust the word of God. It's important to have experiences with God. Please don't get me wrong. John 15 would talk about that, right? Our fruit proves the reality of our salvation, that we are truly followers of Christ. Fruit is important. But before you put any stock in your experience, put it all in Christ. Put all of it in Christ. Because there's an application here that we know what we know because of what God says in in the Scriptures first. And then we need to close this time this morning. Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. What? We have this whole book, five chapters, awesome, son of God language, atoning sacrifice, propitiation for our sins, all this great truth in 1 John. How does he end it? Little children, keep yourself from idols. What? It's like the, the punchline to a bad joke, right? Thankfully, I'm not a joking preacher. I don't tell a lot of jokes, but if I did, I guarantee you I'd have some bad ones. I'd say the punchline, and people would be like, what? Where are you going there? I don't get it, right? Thank you, David Bailey. I appreciate that. (laughs) Why is this here? It's just boom. Don't worship idols. It doesn't even seem connected. What's happening here in this text? Why does it end that way? Well, as I studied it, the idolatry speaking of here, get your mind off of wooden carven images or brass statues or stone images, idols. Get your mind off of those things and think about the warnings that we've had all throughout. These false teachers were believing a false truth. They were believing a false gospel. They weren't adhering to the truth of God's word. And so when you think about idolatry, think about it as a way of understanding anything that contradicts the truth of God. 
So if there's this warning for false teachers all the way throughout 1 John, and he says, hey, don't worship idols. Make sure you have a confidence in God and do not fall into this trap, this danger of these false teachers that have gone out from us and are not of us anymore. That's exactly what John is saying there. Almost a summary statement, right? Make sure you're trusting Christ. Make sure you know the Son of God. Don't you dare follow those idols. Don't you dare fall into that trap. So that's why he closes it this way. Almost like the scene that we see in the Old Testament, Joshua says this, leading the people into the promised land. He says this, Joshua 24, verse 15. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Yeah, amen. That's how John closes his letter right here. Who do you serve? Do you believe the one true God, eternal life? Are you being tempted by these false teachers? Who do you serve? So as we finish 1 John, as we finish this book, I just want to ask a few pastoral questions, really. We've been in this book for 10 weeks. What have you learned from 1 John? What, what have you been convicted by? What has changed in your own walk with the Lord because we've spent this time in 1 John? We don't just come here every Sunday to be entertained, please, because I'm not very good at entertaining. We come to hear from the Word of God. We want it preached over us and heralded over us so that we might obey Him and live for Him and honor Him and glorify Him better. We come to it in the book and we ask, what's different? What's changed? Is there anything different about my life because I've spent 10 weeks looking at this book of 1 John? That's a good question for everyone, including me, to answer in this place today. And then, do you have this confidence? John wants the believers to have confidence. I didn't read my big idea, but it's there on the bulletin, right? The followers of Christ should know that they know the one true God who gives eternal life. Do you have that kind of confidence? And if not, just be honest this morning. Ask someone in your seat to come pray with you. Come up and talk to a pastor and say, please pray with me. I don't have that kind of confidence. I think the Bible wants us to have it, and I don't have it. Would you help me? We'd be happy to help you. And then in closing a series like this, I'd be silly not to just invite anyone that doesn't know Christ. Right? We should know that we know the one true God because eternal life is in Christ. John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, Jesus prays to the Father, that they might know you, the one true God, and your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. If you don't know Christ, if you're not turned away from your sin and trusted in Jesus and what he did at the cross and resurrection and ascension into his seat of authority, if you don't know him, I invite you. I would love the opportunity to open the scriptures, show you the good news of the gospel, Show you about forgiveness and mercy and joy and life abundance. How to walk out of the frustration and brokenness that sin causes. If you don't know him, I invite you. Come ask more. Come talk to a pastor. Talk to any of our church members. Tell me more about Jesus. I would love to know him and have that kind of confidence that the preacher was talking about today. Let's pray.